continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. And I just want to read our text for us this morning. It's Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 44. We'll be looking at two parables this morning. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts to your word this morning. Give us wisdom through your spirit to understand what's before us. Lord, I pray you'd hide me behind the cross and take me out of the way so that your truth could be presented. We thank you and prepare our hearts for our communion time at the end of the service as well. We thank you in Jesus' name. This is, today we're looking at these next two parables, and if you were to give them a, a title, you could almost say the incredible value of the kingdom. That's what they both represent. That's what they both talk about. There was a great saint by the name of Thomas Guthrie, and he wrote this. He was writing about salvation. He said, In the blood of Christ to wash out sin's darkest stains, in the grace of God to purify the foulest heart. In peace to calm life's roughest storms. In hopes to cheer guilt's darkest hour. In a courage that defies death and descends calmly into the tomb. In that which makes the poorest rich and without which the richest are poor indeed. The gospel has treasure greater than the east or west unfold. And its rewards more precious are than all the stores of gold. That's what basically our Lord is saying here in Matthew chapter 13. There's nothing, what he wants us to understand, there's nothing in the universe that compares to the priceless value of his kingdom. So as we look at these two parables, we want to look at what they're going to teach us. The Lord is teaching here in Matthew 13 through a series of parables, seven to be exact, and it's a way of describing this mystery form of the kingdom that is now here on earth. Uh, Remember, we've been looking at these different parables, and we've understood that God is over everything, just like that song said, he's above all. He rules and he reigns at all points in the earth's existence. God is over it. He's supreme. He's sovereign. And at certain times throughout history, God mediates that rule through individuals. We see in the Old Testament where God mediated his rule through the patriarchs or the prophets or the priests or the kings. You can read about that in the Old Testament. Um, When Christ came to earth, he mediated his kingdom through the incarnate Christ for 33 years while he was here on earth. And then he began to mediate his kingdom through the apostles who Christ turned the ministry over to and they started the church. And then even today, he's mediating his kingdom here on earth through the living church, through us as Christians. God is ruling. Even though the world looks like it's going to hell in a handbasket and things are getting out of control and everything, don't fret. God is still in control. He sees everything from beginning to end. And so we're living in this part of the kingdom that was considered a mystery because in the Old Testament, they kind of overshot the church age. They didn't talk about the church age. They just talk about the Messiah coming and then him ruling and reigning. And what Jesus is describing through these parables is the time from his rejection as Christ to the return of Christ. He's talking about the church age. And so it's very applicable to us because that's the age in which we're living today. And so these series of seven parables, the first two talk about the nature of the kingdom. Jesus wanted his disciples to understand what was going to be involved. And he shared two parables, the parables of the soils, who basically, which basically told that, said that, you know what, you're going to have believers and non-believers existing in the kingdom. That was foreign to them. They thought, no, Christ would come and he'd rule and reign with an with a iron rod and, and all unbelievers would just be done away with. And Jesus had to tell his disciples through parables, no, that's not necessarily true. 
So he talked about the different kinds of soil. And then he also talked about the wheat and the tares. Not only are you going to have non-believers and believers existing in the kingdom, but they're actually going to be growing right up beside one another. So you have believers and non-believers, and they're going to grow together, that parable said, until the harvest comes, which when Christ returns, he's going to set all these things in order. So the nature of the kingdom is that it encompasses both good and evil. That was foreign words to them. They couldn't really grasp that. And so he continued with two other parables, and he talks about the power of the kingdom. And we've looked at those in the past couple weeks. In spite of all the, the, the bad, that's, the evil that's part of this kingdom here on earth, he wanted his disciples, and he wants us to know that, you know what, he's still going to prevail. That there's still power there. And he illustrated that through a mustard seed, a tiny little mustard seed that would grow into a giant bush that would almost be the size of a tree. And then he talked about leaven and how that would permeate this lost and dying world. And how that power of that penetration, that permeation would influence the whole world. He wanted his disciples to know that I know you're just a small group of gentlemen. And you're starting out on something that's overwhelming. But I want you to know that you're going to prevail. And so he talked about the nature and he talked about the power. But those first four parables are kind of in general. It's almost like you're up in an airplane and you're looking down at the kingdom. And he's describing what's in the kingdom. He's describing the kingdom to him. He's described the nature. He described the power. And the next question probably on his disciples' tongues were, okay, we know what the kingdom is going to be like. How do we get in it? How do we take part of this kingdom? How do we become a part of it? And that's what he wanted them to understand through these next two parables. Because they may have thought, well, maybe you're born into it. Jews are born into their faith. Once you're a Jew, you're a Jew. You're born a Jew, you're always a Jew. That's just the way it is. Sometimes even today, people are born in, quote, a Christian family. And you see some families, their kids grow up, and they think just because they're born in a Christian family that they're, quote, Christian. Well, that's not necessarily true. And so our Lord wants to talk to them, and he wants to use this third couplet of parables to talk about the appropriation of the kingdom. How do you become part of this kingdom? How do you appropriate it? And so it's a pretty simple outline. We're going to talk about the parables, two parables, and then we're going to talk about six principles that we can glean from what we look at. And so the first parable there, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which when a man has found it, he hides it, and for joy he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys the field. Now, back in those times, I mean, today, where do we put our money? Banks, savings and loans, invest it, real estate, if you have any money, whatever. I mean, you, you, know, you usually put it in some place, institution, something like that. You invest it. Well, back then, I mean, they had banks for the wealthier people. But for the most part, they weren't even a good place to put your valuables. And because of the region in which they lived, you know, Israel at that time was just kind of, you know, you had a war every six months almost sometimes. And so what would happen when they'd have a war? People would, the conqueror would come into the village and he'd go through the houses and what would you think he would take? He would take all the spoils, right? He would take all the valuables out of the house. And so what people would do is they would take their valuables, any coins or gold or whatever they would have, and they would take it in their backyard or out in a field somewhere and they'd mark it and they'd bury it in the earth. That was the safest place to put your valuables. And you may say today, yeah, it's, it's still the safest place, you know. Some of you involved with investment companies and stuff, I don't know what you're thinking sometimes. But, you know, this world, I mean, it's just, you, you don't know how to, you know, really plan ahead sometimes because you don't know what's going to come next. But back then, that was a very common practice. They didn't have access, especially the lower common people, didn't have access to banks and things like that. So they would bury all their treasures. They would bury their valuables in, like, their backyard. And uh, according to the parable here, this man was in a field. What was he doing in the field? Well, he was probably working. More than likely, he was probably plowing the field. I mean, that's probably how he found this treasure. So you can picture this guy out there. He's just maybe a day laborer or whatever, and he's out there, and he's got the, the plow hooked up, and he's, he's plowing the field, and all of a sudden, boom, his plow hits something. And he's thinking, huh, wonder what that is. 
And it says that he found the treasure. He opened the, the box and probably most likely gold was inside. And it says that he buried it again. And then he sold everything he had and he went out and he bought the field to gain the treasure that he found. Now, it wasn't unusual in those days for somebody to find something valuable in a field. It just wasn't because everybody hid their stuff in the, in the earth, basically. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talks about another parable. Remember the parable of the talents. And he gives these individuals certain talents. And, and the last guy, he, he took his talent and he, what did he do? He buried it in the earth. Now, he was reprimanded because that wasn't a good investment strategy. But it just shows us the point that that was a common practice. They would bury things in the earth. Josephus, the first uh, century Jewish historian, said this, the gold and the silver and the rest of the most precious furniture which the Jews had and which the owners treasured up underground against the uncertain fortunes of war. So it was a very common practice for them to bury their valuables in the earth. And so this guy's out there plowing this field, and you know, that wasn't a, you know, his disciples knew exactly what he was saying. They didn't say, well, why is this guy in the field? No, they, they knew exactly. All right, and so he digs this treasure up and inadvertently comes across it. Now, at this point in the parable, some people say, well, now, wait a minute, did that guy do the right thing? Did you ever ask that question? Think about it. This guy is in somebody else's field, right, as a worker, and he's plowing the guy's field, and he comes across the treasure, most people say, well, why didn't he go to the owner and say, oh, here, I found this? Some people believe, well, see, this, this kind of disproves, I mean, Jesus, look, he loses his credibility right here. He's telling a story that, you know, it's kind of this guy's cheating the landowner. Well, that's not the case at all. As a matter of fact, if you do research on Jewish rabbinic law, the law actually says this. If a man finds scattered fruit, scattered money, these belong to the finder. So, you know the little phrase, finders, keepers, losers, weepers? Well, that, that was very true in their day. Because the man who found the treasure was within the bounds of the Jewish rabbinical law, and the people listening to Jesus telling this story wouldn't even have questioned it. They said, yeah, the guy found the treasure, it's his. It's that simple. Because they knew the law. And you say, well, maybe, you know, this is unethical. Because the guy, he didn't own the, the field. Maybe he should have... Didn't the guy who owned the field own the treasure? No. <laughs> it's not how it worked. Because the treasure was probably hidden in the field and it, before the current owner even owned it. The only reason I know that is because why would the owner even sell this guy the field if he knew the treasure was buried out there, right? So apparently, the current owner of this field bought the field from somebody else, from an estate or something. Maybe the guy died in war after hiding all his treasure out there in the field, and he was killed. Nobody knew the treasure was there. The next landowner buys the field. He doesn't know the treasure is there. And this servant guy discovers it. So it wasn't really property of the current field owner either, because he didn't even know it was there. And then some people say, well, this guy, you know, that's not fair. He should have been an honest man. He should have went to the owner. You know what? He was a very honest man. Probably most people, as soon as they discovered that treasure, what would they have done? Take it, right? Turn it in, cash it in, see you later, pal. I'm not plowing your field anymore. I'm going to go buy my own estate. Because it was an incredible amount of treasure. But what does he do? The parable says that, you know what? He buries it once again. Now, I would have been him. I would have opened the thing and taken some gold coins out to at least help me buy the field. He didn't even do that. He put everything right backwards. He buries it once again. And then he goes out and it says that he sells everything that he has. Everything. Every possession. To purchase the field. Instead of kind of cutting corners and maybe taking a couple of those gold coins and going back to the owner and saying, hey, you know, I ran out of some money. I want to buy your field. You know, and get the rest of the treasure. At least that would be kind of, in some people's mind, halfway ethical. He was, he was more than honest when he dealt with this guy because he went out and he sold everything he had and he knew that that was the right way to get this treasure. He didn't do anything unethical. He didn't defraud anybody. And the point of the parable is this. You say, well, okay, what is the point? The point is simply this. A man found something so valuable that he was willing to sell everything he had to get it. 
You remember, he, Jesus is telling his disciples how you get the kingdom. He told them what it was about in the first four parables. Now he's saying, if you want this, here's how you get it. He was so ecstatic about finding this treasure that he was willing to do whatever he needed to purchase it, to get that field. The second parable, verses 45 to 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus continues, is like a merchant man seeking fine pearls, who when he found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and he bought it. Merchant man, in the original language, emperos is the Greek there, and it means that a man who would buy things at a wholesale level. So he's not just going to the market to just buy some things for himself. No, he's, he's going to search for pearls that he could buy and then sell them to a retailer. That's what the original language indicates. And he was seeking, it says, fine pearls. So this guy was in a very good uh, market, <laughs> Because pearls in those days were kind of like diamonds in our days. They were very, very valuable. And here this entrepreneur is out there looking for pearls so he could resell them. And people would, a lot of times, they would kind of liquidate or diversify their investments. And they would invest in pearls because of their value. Um, They were the most Valuable gem in the, at that time in their society. If you own pearls, you own a fortune, basically. Um, that's how they, they looked at it. Now, how did they get these pearls? This is kind of interesting. Um, they would have pearl hunters. And these pearls were found in the Red Sea. They were found in the Persian Gulf. A lot of them were found in the Indian Ocean. And there was an incredible price that had to be paid to get these pearls. They didn't have all the modern diving equipment and everything that we have today, obviously. What they would do is they would take some guy that could hold his breath a good, good amount of time, okay? They'd tie rocks to his body, and they'd throw him over the boat. So he'd sink to the bottom. And it was his goal to go down there in the mud and the muck and, and look for oysters. And when he'd find a couple... He'd cut the thing and float to the top, and sometimes, I mean, they were incredible. I mean, even pearl divers today in some parts of the the world hold their breaths for incredible amounts of time. But there was kind of a a price to be paid there. I mean, that's not something that, you know, you just do, you know, jump into these shark-infested water. Who knows what was down there over in those oceans? I don't know. But they did it willingly because of the price that they were going to, the value of the pearl that they were looking for. I mean, in the world itself, the Talmud says this, pearls are beyond price. In other words, they're priceless. The Egyptians actually worshipped pearls. And that was carried on by the Romans as well. They were constantly worshipping them because they were so much uh, of value. And Roman emperors, to prove to other people, other leaders, how rich they were, they would take pearls and they would dissolve them in vinegar and then they'd mix them with their drinks and they'd drink them just for fun, just to say, hey, look at what I'm doing, you know, how rich I am. So in the world, they were, they were looked at as very valuable things. Um, our Lord mentions pearls in Matthew 7, 6. We've looked at that, where he says, do not cast our pearls before swine. In other words, don't give something valuable to a pig. Talking of the gospel. Some people don't want to hear the gospel. Well, you don't go out there and try to jam it down the throat. Okay, that's throwing pearls before swine. And so they're very valuable in those days. And if you stop and you think of these two stories, some of you I mentioned are in investment companies, things like that. That's what you do for a living. The one thing you probably tell your clients is what? You need to diversify your investments. You never, ever put everything in one basket. Right? You just don't do that. That's just not good investment strategy. But that's exactly what these two individuals did, if you look at the parables. The first man sold everything he had to buy a field because it had a treasure in it, and the second man sold everything he had to buy one pearl. So those are the stories. They're pretty simple. And the people in Jesus' day thoroughly understood what he was saying, just like you understand what they were saying. Well, let's look at the principles that we can gain from these Parables. There's six principles. The first principle is rather simple. The kingdom is priceless. 
Both parables teach us that same thing. They teach us the same principle, that there's some kind of an incomparable value when it comes to the Lord's kingdom. A person is brought into the kingdom of God by what? By Christ's gift of salvation. We're going to be celebrating communion here in a little bit. Incredible price was paid so that we could have salvation, have forgiveness of sin. When a person is saved, he'll have the knowledge that, of God through Jesus Christ. He can experience that preciousness of being in the kingdom and have that fellowship of the King, of the Lord Jesus Christ, as a subject of the sovereign God. That's, that's what we're called to be. The blessedness of, a, of the kingdom is so valuable that a person would have to be a fool not to be willing to sell everything that he had to gain it. Because nothing comes in comparison, value-wise. Nothing. That's the point that he's trying to make. The kingdom is priceless. Christ and his kingdom are a treasure that are, is rich beyond comparison. It's, it's this incorruptible, it's undefiled, it's eternal, the Bible says. And that treasure is lying in the field of this poverty-stricken, accursed, sin-filled world. But it's available. It's available there. Salvation, forgiveness, love, joy, virtue, goodness, glory, heaven, eternal life. They're all in that treasure. And God's planted it right out there. Floyd Hawkins wrote a hymn entitled, I've Discovered the Way of Gladness. And he, one phrase in the hymn says this, I've found the pearl of greatest price, eternal life so fair, t'was through the Savior's sacrifice I found that jewel rare. See, that's what our salvation should be. It should be something that we treasure. The eternal value of salvation outstrips the value of anything. All the pearls in the world could never even add up to that. And yet you stop and you look at the world and you say, boy, how little does the world know about the gem of salvation when they're so readily just to throw it aside? How the world involves itself in things that are so valueless. We had the opportunity this last week to go up to Lake Tahoe and spend a couple days up there. At one point we're walking around, walked into Harrah's or one of the casinos and just walking around, you know, checking things out. And I kind of walked all the way back to the gaming tables and kind of made my way through there. And I'm looking at these people, you know, and they're punching buttons and they're just glassy-eyed. And, and I'm thinking, man, these people are seeking something. They're seeking a treasure. But you know what? They're not going to find it in a casino. It's unfortunate. But they are seeking something. And it's, it's neat to know that Christ has provided that priceless kingdom through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Second principle here about these parables is that the kingdom is not superficially visible. Notice both of these stories, parables that Jesus shows us, the treasure was where? It was hidden. It wasn't just sitting out there in a treasure box in an unplowed field. It was under the ground. It wasn't lying on the surface. And even the merchant with the pearl, he had to search for the pearl. See, in the same way, the value of salvation is not apparent to most people. It's just not. The world looks at Christians and, you know, they don't understand why they worship God every Sunday. They don't understand why they meet together on Wednesday nights for Bible study. They don't understand why they're praying for people and, and, you know, things like that. They don't get it. They don't understand why a person would want to give his life to Christ and live by a code of ethics that goes against every grain of the lust that rules in our hearts. People don't get that. They don't understand why Christians value that so highly. 1 Corinthians 2.14 kind of explains it. It says, Paul writes, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him, it says. And he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Beloved, I grew up in a church for 19 years of my life. I was pretty faithful to that church. But I didn't have the Spirit of God ruling and reigning in my heart. And I'm sure that there was spiritual input into my mind and into my heart through the homily and whatever the priest would do every Sunday. But you know what? It didn't penetrate anything. It had no effect on my life whatsoever. Because I was a natural person. 
The Spirit of God hadn't quickened my heart yet. 2 Corinthians 4.4, it says that God has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, the kingdom and the word of God are not apparent to men. It's not something, you know, you can't just pick this book up and read it like a novel. It's a supernatural book. It's called the word of life. And the parables here of the pearl, and the, the, the merchant had to search for that pearl. You know, it's not like you just go out into the, into the, the, the ocean there and reach down and grab a pearl. I mean, you've got to search for them. You've got to put forth some effort. In the parable of the treasure, the man discovered the treasure. And he pursued and obtained it. But see, some people never stop to look below the surface things in the world in which we live. They just cruise along kind of on autopilot and enjoy everything that this world has to offer. But they don't go below the surface. They don't realize that there's a treasure there waiting in Christ. They're so busy fooling around in the world with superficial things that they're not going to matter. We, when we were up there at Lake Tahoe, we saw some houses. They, they had some condos at one end of the lake. I mean, I think he said it was like between four and six million dollar condos. And they looked empty to me. And they said, part of the homeowner's thing there, you can't rent the condo out. They don't live there. It's just like a summer home. And then on top of that, some of you may own condos, and you know the little, what do they call it, the little fee that they charge you every, every month. Theirs is like, what was it, $5,000 or something. It was incredible. And I'm thinking, wow. You know, would that be a nice thing to have? Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, it really has no eternal value. It's not going not gonna to last eternally. Things degrade. Things just, you know, go down, downhill. So in the parable of the treasure, the man discovered the treasure and he pursued to obtain it. It's, it's important to understand that when we share the gospel with people, some people aren't going to get it. They just don't get it. That's okay because it's spiritually discerned. It's something God has to show them. Non-believers do not understand the inestimable value of salvation. That's why in, in, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 14, Jesus said very clearly, narrow is the gate. He didn't say it was broad. He said it was narrow. Narrow is the gate and hard is the way that leads to eternal life. And few are there that find it. And so sometimes when we come to our salvation and things like that, it's not something that we just figured out one day. I just didn't figure out one day, oh, I think I'll become a Christian now. No, it was God did something in my heart. See, the kingdom is so valuable, but it's also hidden from people who don't want to look hard, who don't want to look for truth. You know, I've, I've talked to so many people sometimes that, you know, they're critics of Christianity, they're critics of Christ. My first question is, have you read the Bible? Well, I haven't read the whole thing. It's just a silly argument. You, you're, you're criticizing something you haven't even read? I mean, that's, that's just silly. And yet, that's how the world is so many times. The world doesn't see it readily. In John 5.40, Jesus told the people, he says, search the scriptures. Search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life, for they are they which testify of me. See, what Jesus is saying is, you know what, don't take my, my word for it. Don't come here and sit here and open your Bible every week and say, oh, whatever the pastor says. No, search it out yourself. Take your Bible home and open it up and ask God to help you understand it. I mean, I don't have any corner on the truth. I have the same spirit of God that you do. I mean, let's, let's get busy at, at kind of digging out God's truth, seeing what he has for us. In John chapter 1, John said of Jesus, He was in the world, the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and they received him not. See, we're to, we're to strive to enter the narrow gate. It's not an easy thing to get saved. That's the modern day church thing. Oh yeah, just say this little prayer and you know, throw something in the basket and, and say your prayers before you eat. Okay, That doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is when you understand that the kingdom is, is priceless. 
and that you understand this, that it, it, it has to be sought out. Third principle here is the kingdom is personally appropriated. And this is, if, if there's any other thing you get, get this, because this is kind of the, the crux of these two parables, that it's personally appropriated. Each of these two men, in several parables, they find something, and what do they do? They do whatever they can to appropriate it, to get it. See, that shows us that you can be under the dominion of God, that you can be part of God's kingdom and not be a member of God's kingdom. Everyone in the universe is under God's rule. The scriptures clearly teach that because he is the sovereign of the universe. Those who are on the earth are, in a sense, in God's kingdom, but those who are on the earth are not subjects to the king. So in the same way, there are many people in the church today that aren't Christians. That's just the way it is. Although the world is under the rule of Jesus Christ, not all of the people in it are part of his kingdom. And that's what Jesus wants his disciples to understand, is that you have to personally appropriate this. You don't get it by birthright. You don't get it by just being born into it. You have to personally search it out. Even in Matthew eight twelve, Jesus said to the Jewish people of his day, listen to what he says. He says, the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into utter darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, there are some Jewish people that despite being under God's covenant with Israel, being Jewish, they're never going to personally come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ, and they'll never really understand who God is. And even though they are, in a way, sons of the kingdom, they're going to be cast into utter darkness. Because that's not how you appropriate God's kingdom. You have to do it personally. Paul said in Romans 2 that circumcision is not of the flesh, but of the heart. See, in in Israel, they thought, well, as long as you're circumcised and you're part of Israel, then you'll be saved. Not, not, Not so. They rejected the Messiah that came to save them. In Romans 9, 6, Paul said, For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. In other words, just because you're part of the Israel camp doesn't mean that you're saved. A person could be Jewish and under the rule of God, yet not be a member of the kingdom. And that's true today. And so these two parables point that out. They're focusing on the personal appropriation of the kingdom. Before a person can personally appropriate the kingdom, he must come to a point where he sees the value of the kingdom. If the guy was plowing the field and he hit a log and he got back there and he looked at the log, I don't think he would go and sell everything he had to buy the field so he could get the log. He hit something, and when he discovered it was a treasure, it was of incredible value to him, and he did whatever he could to appropriate that treasure. And the same thing with the pearl. And so you have to understand that this is something that God offers to you, but you have to understand that there's, there's a need for it in your life, and it's something that's value to you first step towards salvation is understanding that you need it, <laughs> right? That's the first thing a salesman does. Any salesman worth his salt, the first thing that he has to do is create a need in your life for what he's selling. If he can't do that, then forget it. So when we look at our salvation, there's some people that look at their lives and go, yeah, you know what? I am a wretch. <laughs> I am a wreck. As we just sang, amazing grace How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's not because of who I am. It's not because of who you are that God saves you. He does it because he does it. But it's by his grace. So he's offered something of true value to men. And yet it's incredible the extremes people go to find things in the world that are totally worthless, and yet they bypass the salvation that God so freely offers them. Well, the fourth principle here is the kingdom is a source of joy. In verse 44, he says that the man's response to finding the treasure was one of joy. Was one of joy. It says with joy he sold everything. He didn't go home and go, oh man, I gotta sell this, I gotta sell that to get that crazy treasure out there. Oh man, my life's just... No, he was happy to do it. The basic desire of all human beings is to have joy, to be happy. Some people say, well, you know, that's not true because I know some people who, who love misery. Well, you know what? Their misery makes them happy. 
So the principle still stands. They're happy to be miserable. People want to feel good. The Lord knows that. He said to his disciples in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy might remain in you. That's what Jesus said. And that your joy might be complete or be full. In 1 John 1, 4, John said, These things I write unto you, that your joy may be full. See, Christianity isn't something where we put, you know, sackcloth and ashes in our heads and go up and live in some monastery somewhere. I mean, that's not what we're called to. I mean, some Christians, you meet them, it's like they've been sucking on sour prunes or something. I don't know, or grapefruit or whatever. I mean, we're supposed to have a joy of the Lord in our heart. John sixteen twenty four, he says, You've asked nothing in my name, asking you shall receive, that your joy may be full. Paul writes in Romans 14, For the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and, guess what? Joy in the Spirit. Romans 15 13, Paul said to the Romans, he said, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy. People want to experience joy. You know, I don't know about you, but I don't wake up every morning saying, How can I make my day miserable today? That's, that's not how we wake up. You want to have a good day. And you can find true joy by discovering the kingdom of heaven and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he promises. And so the kingdom is precious, but it's also hidden. It's not so obvious all the time. And the person who personally gets it, appropriates the kingdom, he's going to find this true source of joy. So the man who found the treasure sold everything he had to be able to purchase the treasure, and he did it with joy. Um, The Bible says, Paul wrote, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say what? Rejoice. Christians should rejoice more than any other people because they found the treasure. They've appropriated the treasure. Fifthly, the kingdom is entered under difficult or different circumstances. The kingdom is entered under different circumstances. And we could go around the room if we had time and ask, how did you come into the kingdom? How did you get saved? And we'd all have a different story, right? You're not, it's not you know, just one, one way for everybody. There are some similarities here in these two parables, but there's also some differences. Similarities are each parable has a man. Both men find something of great value. In both cases, they recognize the great value, and they're willing to pay whatever it is to obtain what they found. But one big difference between the parables is that in the parable of the treasure, the man found this treasure just by accident, right? I mean, he's just out there plowing the field, and he finds a treasure of incomparable value. But in the parable of the pearl, the man, it says, is searching for the pearls. He has a purpose. And when he found one of great value, he was willing to do whatever he could do to purchase it. See, the first man didn't know what he was looking for. He's just out there plowing the field. Fat, dumb, and happy, you know, riding the tractor, whatever he had back then, you know. Clunk, oh, wow, look at what I found. But the second man, he had a purpose. Stop and think of the Bible. Think of the Apostle Paul. I mean, he's just walking down the road to Damascus, right? He's getting ready to go and kill some more Christians. Boom! God hits him. Boom! Out of nowhere. He wasn't searching Christ. He wasn't looking for Christ. But God redeemed him. The thirsty woman, the Samaritan woman who went to the well to get a drink of water. She was just thirsty. She just went to the well. Oh, they go go to the well and get something to drink. And she met the Savior there. Man, her life was transformed. The man who was born blind just wanted to be able to see. He was not only healed, the Bible tells us, but he was redeemed. See, there are some people who go to church, sometimes they, they, they go to maybe mock the preacher or, or make fun of whatever, or whatever they might be. But you know what? They end up getting saved because the word of God penetrates their hearts. There are people who aren't looking for the treasure, but they stumble upon it. One example of that is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was... New Year's Day, 15 years old. He wasn't a Christian, but he was religious. He went to a certain church every Sunday, and he was on his way to that church, and the snow was so bad that he couldn't make it to his church that he usually goes to. So he went down some alley and went into this little rinky-dink church and uh, just because he felt he had to go to church. He walked in, sat in the back. There was hardly anybody there, maybe 10 people. And it, the story goes that the pastor that was supposed to come and preach in this little little church because of the snowstorm outside, he couldn't make it. So one of the elders, one of the deacons, 
had to do something for the service, so they just got up and they just started, uh, the guy got up behind the pulpit and just started reading this verse. And the verse said this, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And he just kept on reading it over and over and over. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Something about Spurgeon sitting in the back there caught this guy's eye. Obviously, a church that size, you'd notice a visitor right away. And he looked right at Spurgeon and he said, Young man, you look very miserable. You will always be miserable in life and miserable in death unless you obey my text. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And then he shouted at Spurgeon, Young man, look to Jesus. And Spurgeon tells us that the darkness rolled away and he saw the sun. He wasn't searching for anything. He just stumbled into a church because of a snowstorm. But he stumbled upon a fortune. And few people who have ever lived have affected as many souls as Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Incredible preacher. And he thought, this guy who's up there just reciting this verse over and over, he, even in his, his, his um, biography, said, you know, this guy was stupid. He used that word, stupid. But God's word was powerful. So he just stumbled, but in the second parable here, this guy didn't stumble upon anything he was searching for. See, some people are searching for things in life. Some people aren't. And see, that's where you have to, and that's how God has to work in your life. The merchant was the kind of man who was seeking God. He was seeking something of true value. And during his search, he didn't know that he would find what he was looking for in just one pearl. But that's exactly what happened. He was looking for goodness and honesty and virtue and forgiveness and peace and joy and heaven and salvation and God. And he found it all. And just like us today, we find it all in Christ. You don't find it in a church. You don't find it in different religious things. That You find it in Christ. See, there are people who stumble into the kingdom from our point of view, but not from God's point of view. And there are people who search out the kingdom because the kingdom is entered under different circumstances. The last principle here this morning I want to share with you is the kingdom is made by personal is made personal by a transaction. The kingdom is made by personal by a transaction. You notice there in both of those parables, the first parable it says the word buy. The second parable, the word bought is used. That's a transaction. Something happened. I mean, some people get nervous about this, but you know what? Are you saying that these parables are saying that a person must buy his salvation? In a sense, these parables say that these men did buy their salvation, but you have to understand what I mean by that. Both the treasure and the pearl were bought with money, it says, according to the parable. But these are just stories. I mean, obviously, you can't buy your salvation with money. The Bible is very clear about that. Matthew 19, 24 says the rich man can no more buy his way into, king, into the kingdom than a camel go through the eye of a needle. And in Romans 3, verses 21 and 26, it tells us that salvation is a free gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us that salvation is not of works, lest any man should boast. It's all of grace. But there is a verse in the Old Testament... Isaiah 55, verse 1. And it talks about salvation by grace. And it says in Isaiah 55, verse 1, and this kind of ties in to our communion time as well. Everyone that thirsts come to the waters, and he, listen to this, that has no money, come, and then it says, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. See, there's still a transaction that's being made, but it's done without money. There is a transaction made to purchase salvation, but it's not with the money that we think of or goods. The transaction is basically simply this. You give up all that you have, and he'll give you all that he has. Speaking of Christ, that's the transaction that needs to take place. Over in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, Jesus explains what this means. 
It says in verse 57 of Luke 9, he says, Now it happened as they journeyed on the road, this is Jesus and his disciples, that someone said to him out of the crowd, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. Mr. Too Hasty here. Hey, look at, look at the crowd Jesus has. Look at all these people, man. I bet you it's fun to travel with this guy. Hey, Lord, I'm going to go wherever you go. Can I stay with you tonight? And look at what Jesus says. Verse 58, he says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But guess what, pal? The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Don't get the idea that I'm staying at the Ritz-Carlton tonight, buddy, because I'm not. I don't have anywhere to lay my head. So if you're coming just for that reason, don't bother. See, some people come to Christ just because they, they're looking for some kind of a personal comfort. Well, the second guy here, verse 59, he said to another, follow me. But this guy replied to the Lord. He said, Lord, first let me go bury my father. And tradition tells us that his father wasn't even dead yet. What he was telling Jesus was, hey, my dad's about ready to die, and I'm going to get the inheritance. And you know what? I'll follow you, but I've got I to gotta take care of business first, Jesus. Think of all the money I'll have. It, it'll be easier on the road for us. We will have a place to lay our head then because I'll have all this money. And Jesus turns to him, and he says, basically, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. In other words, you know what? You're distracted with the wrong things. I just asked you to follow me, and you made an excuse. Let me go bury my father first. Third guy. And another one said, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go home and say goodbye to those that are at my, at my house. I mean, that doesn't seem like an unreasonable request, does it? Hey, you know what? I'm going to go to the mission field. You know, I'm going to go back and, and say goodbye to my family in Pennsylvania. That wouldn't seem unreasonable. But look at what Jesus says. No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, you know what? If there's anything, it could even be a good thing like family. If there's anything that stands in the way of you serving me and you following me, don't, don't go down that road. You stay fixed and you stay focused on what I've called you to do. Sometimes that's hard to do. Sometimes it's difficult. So the issue is whether a person is willing to give up everything that he has to receive Christ. That's what the Bible says. That doesn't sound real popular, but that's what the Bible teaches. Matter of fact, Jesus even said this in Matthew 10, verse 37. He that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And what he's saying is what? He's saying, you know what, nothing, salvation in Christ is so valuable, nothing should come in between our pursuit of that. If you're not willing to give up something that needs to be given up, such as your family, then you're not going to enter the kingdom. Simply, simply that, that sounds hard, but that's, that's what Jesus taught. He even taught more than that. He said, if you don't take up your cross which is an instrument of death, and follow me. You're not worthy of me. He said, if you find your life, you're going to lose it. And if you lose your life for my sake, you're going to find it. See, the tables are turned upside down when it comes to Christ. See, that's the transaction. That's what he's talking about. You give up all that you are, and you receive all that he is. And when you stop and you begin to understand who Christ is and what he's done for us and the incomparable value of knowing him, you'd be a fool to not make that transaction. That's how one receives salvation. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Basic principle in salvation is that a person gives himself up to make Christ the ruler of his life. And that's, a, that's, that's something that we all need to deal with on a daily basis. It doesn't come easy. It's never easy. But you know what? That's what the Bible tells us to do. I mean, I've said before, you know, if I could travel around, follow the grandkids around the country as they move with the Navy every three years, I'd do it. That's not what God's called me to do. Or if I could move back to Pennsylvania and spend more time with my family, I'd do it. But that's not what God's called me to do. 
And so we need to stop and we need to think, is the kingdom of God that valuable to us? Are we willing to give up everything that we have in our pursuit of Christ? Or is it just when it's comfortable? Is it just when you know, our needs are met? You know, what happens when the government cracks down and all of a sudden they start closing down the churches and they start saying, hey, you, know, you know what, you can't preach this stuff anymore. What do you do? Say, oh, okay, just go home? No. We have to be obedient to God's call. What if they threw you in prison? They threw you in prison then. That's, I mean, that's the kind of sellout mentality you have to have. It's like when you find somebody who's starting a new business. You know, they're not lackadaisical. Pretty much people like that who are entrepreneurs and they're starting a new startup company, whatever. I mean, they're putting everything on the line. They got it all out there. I mean, they got probably houses, mortgage, and, every, and everything's in this one company. And they you know, work long hours and they do everything they can to make it work. And that's what Christ is saying. That's what I'm requiring of you. If you're going to follow me. If you want salvation, it's here. It's free. But you've got to be willing to deny yourself. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that through these two parables, we would understand the incredible value that you place on your kingdom. And Lord, I'm sure your disciples were excited to hear what you were sharing with them. And yet, I'm sure that they were even maybe a little bit intimidated as maybe some of us here this morning are. Because it is an intimidating thing. When we look at ourselves and we look at our own selfish desires and our own wants and our own needs and we place those before you. Lord, that, that doesn't please you. You clearly say that in your word. And Father, help us to set ourselves aside. Help us to refocus our lives that would be lives that would honor you and glorify you that we'd be willing to search out these treasures. Maybe there's some here this morning who, who don't know you in a personal way. They haven't appropriated the kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would speak truth to their heart. Do the work that you need to do. Nothing I can do. Lord, it's, it's you, you that work in the heart to draw men to yourself. And Father, I pray that you would show them that there is a need there for a Savior and salvation. And that you would show them that you're willing to forgive their sin and make them into the kind of person that you originally intended them to be. They would be free from the burden of guilt and pain, and even ultimately death, Lord, that you grant us eternal life. Father, we turn our hearts to our communion table this morning, and Lord, as we sing these next two songs and then have our communion time together, Lord, I just pray that you would minister your grace to our hearts. Lord, that we, we practice an open communion here. Those who know Christ are free to partake as the plates passed around. And, and Lord, I just pray that we would... Uh, just close out the busyness of this, this world just for the next few moments as we close our service with our communion time. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.